so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Carter Sneed, a professor of law and the director of the Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Today, we talk about his latest book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Dr. Sneed is one of the world's leading experts on public bioethics. His research explores issues relating to neuroethics, enhancement, human embryo research, assisted reproduction, abortion, and end-of-life decision-making. He has written more than 50 journal articles, book chapters, and essays. His scholarly work has appeared in such publications as the New York University Law Review, the Harvard Law Review Forum, and the Vanderbilt Law Review. And now let's join our conversation with Dr. Sneed. Well, Dr. Sneed, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in bioethics? Sure. Yeah, my background, uh, I'm a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, where I also direct the the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, which has a significant bioethics component to its academic programming. Before joining the faculty at the University of Notre Dame in 2005, I served as general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics uh, from 2002 to 2005. It was a, an amazing experience working under Leon Cass, who was the chairman at the time. We had a very interesting and diverse group of council members, including Gil Mylander and Robbie George and Marianne Glendon, Frank Fukuyama, James Q. Wilson, uh, Michael Sandel, uh, a whole array of very, very interesting and thoughtful people. Uh, so that was a special, a special uh, experience. And before that, you know, I was I was a lawyer practicing uh, at a law firm before that clerked for a federal judge. Uh, did some studies of bioethics and law when I was at law school at Georgetown. And before that, I'm a graduate of St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a great books program, which has a pretty robust laboratory curriculum, a three-year required laboratory curriculum in which you go through the original sources for the various sciences in Western civilization, including biology. So I spent a lot of time uh, with Aristotle's parts of animals and, and all the way up through modern genetics. Uh, so was always interested in, in bioethics, um, but, uh, but really my... my uh, I got the in-depth exposure 
uh, working as general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics. Well, and I really appreciate your book. It's What It Means to Be Human by Harvard University Press. And in the book, you argue that our current laws around bioethics are often grounded in an incomplete or a false vision of human identity and flourishing, namely what you call an expressive individualism. What are the problems with this expressive individualism and what's this alternative vision that you propose? Yeah. So I would start with the observation that all law and public policy, because at at bottom, this is a book about law and public policy, analyzing the current state of play of the law of abortion and assisted reproduction and end-of-life decision-making. All law rests on a prior assumption about what a human being is and what constitutes human flourishing. And that's because all law and public policy aims to promote the flourishing of persons and to protect persons. So it it has to, if it's going to be coherent at all, operate from a usually unstated set of assumptions about who we are uh, and what we owe to each other and what constitutes our flourishing. And when I took a look at those areas of law and policy, what I found was the assumptions about human identity and human flourishing were imperfect and flawed in a a dangerous way. Uh, Namely, as you said, uh, it operated from the anthropology, and when I say anthropology, I don't mean the, in the academic sense. I mean it in the sense of what it means to be a human being. It's assumptions about what it meant to be a human being tracked very closely what philosophers have described as expressive individualism, as well as social scientists, by the way. That, by the way. Robert Bella, author of the 1985 uh, classic Habits of the Heart, I think coined the phrase expressive individualism. And this is a vision of the human person that really identifies and defines the person solely in accordance with and with respect to his or her will, his or her set of desires. Uh, A person is defined by their capacity to choose, and the human person is uh, defined, and their flourishing is defined by interrogating the depths of the interior of their selves to find their own authentic and original truths, express those truths, and use those truths to configure their life plans. And... um, And moreover, the fundamental unit of human reality in this anthropology is the individual. So people are defined by their individual particular wills, their atomized individual wills, if you will, irrespective of how they find themselves situated in relationship to their family or their community, their tradition or their civilization. All of that is uh, accidental. All of that is instrumental to them pursuing the, the goods that they discover within themselves by interrogating the interior depths of their own desires. And there is some obvious truth in this, that that is, I mean, we are free individuals, we are individuated and we're particular. Uh, And so there is some truth in it. It's a kind of compelling and attractive vision, sort of romantic vision of the lonely individual blazing his or her path in the universe based on his or her authentic truths, regardless of the community or, or anyone around them. In fact, usually in some cases, transgressive of the norms and the mores of the community around them. Uh, so it's kind of a tract, it's a sort of sexy vision, right, of the individual pursuing his or her own, own own way. But it is for anybody who thinks for a moment about what our lives are like individually and in our shared in our shared lives with others, it doesn't even come close to describing how we are for much of our lives. Much of our lives, we are vulnerable and dependent upon others. Uh, obviously, when we were born, we come into the world. Uh, we're radically dependent upon the beneficence of our parents to care for us and others to care for us. We wouldn't survive otherwise. Uh, there are moments in our life where we become sick or injured or, 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 or damaged in some way, and we need and we again come to rely on others. Alistair McIntyre, famous philosopher, says that we all exist on a scale of disability. 
And I argue in the book, the reason for our vulnerability, the reason for our mutual dependence and our limits, our, our being subjected to natural limits, is because we are, in a fundamental way, bodies, living bodies. We are in the world. We experience ourselves as bodies. We experience one another as bodies. We live as bodies. We die as bodies. And what the anthropology of expressive individualism misses is this element of our identity, which is embodiment. And that's especially dangerous when you're building laws and policies for bioethics, because law and bioethics and the issues that, that the laws and policies respond to frequently respond to the vulnerability and neediness of people precisely in their embodied state. And if the whole, and if, if the whole universe of persons is limited to people who are capable of interrogating their interior selves and expressing their original truths, you're leaving a whole lot of people outside the circle of the human community. Uh, children, the elderly, the disabled, obviously unborn children. And it's a very narrow and inhuman account of who we are and what we owe to each other. That is expressive individualism. And my argument in the book is we make a terrible mistake when we build our laws on those anthropological assumptions. Yeah. And, and to dig a little bit deeper on that, how do you see this culture of expressive individualism playing out in debates around issues like abortion or end-of-life decision-making? Yeah. So to be clear, when I talk about these assumptions about who we are and what our flourishing is, I'm talking about the assumptions on which the law is built, not the assumptions that individual people make in making their own decisions. So there's a mismatch between this vision of the person as, as merely an atomized individual will uh, an expressive individualism and the reality, the lived reality, the complex lived reality that we are, in fact, a dynamic unity of mind and body and 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 our and our bodies are an essential part of our identity, not, not merely instruments to bend to our wills, to pursue our, our plans. And you see this mismatch between the assumptions about what a person is and the reality of what a person is. In the context of the law of abortion, for example, if you read and I go through the cases, the seminal cases in American law, uh, Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and so on. And what I show is the court in making the law of abortion in the United States, because in the U.S., abortion law is primarily a function of Supreme Court jurisprudence, because the court took to itself, uh, I would argue, arrogated wrongly to itself the authority to make all law on abortion in the United States by interpreting the Constitution in a way that, uh, again, I think bends its meaning in a, an unrecognizable way to take a passage uh, from the 14th Amendment that says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law that was uh, ratified in 1868 and read into that a, a, an almost absolute right to abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy, which is what the court did in 1973 in Roe v. Wade. Uh, if you look at the court's reasoning, as I did, and if you look at the philosophical literature on which the court at least implicitly relies, the philosophical underpinnings of the abortion rights movement, what you find is even the framing of the question or the backdrop, the factual context in which the abortion question arises, uh, the framing is unrecognizable as, as human because they describe the relationship between mother and unborn child as a relationship of atomized strangers who are in a conflict over scarce resources, namely the body of the mother herself. And the mother is recognized as a person because she can do the things that persons do under the auspices of expressive individualism. She's self-conscious. She has the cognitive capacities to, to, for introspection and to find her original truths and to configure her life plans accordingly. Whereas the unborn child is not recognized as a person because he or she 
is due to his or her own immaturity, not capable of that kind of cognitive activity. So you have a clash of strangers, one of whom is a person because of her cognitive powers, one of whom is not a person because of his or her lack of cognitive powers, and then the reasoning sort of falls out from there. And the burdens that the court looked to to derive the right to abortion are the burdens that would be the burdens of uh, recognizable by expressive individualism. It is the burdens on a woman to pursue her life plan in full freedom, to find her place in the economic and social life of the nation on the same footing as a man while pursuing forms of sexual expression that men do as well. So a man and a woman engage in sexual intercourse and the woman becomes pregnant. She is differently burdened by that action than the man is. The right to abortion is necessary to eliminate that burden so that she can she can pursue her her, her hopes and dreams in uh, uh, the economic and social realm. And through the lens of expressive individualism, that's how you frame the question. But as we know, a richer and truer account of what is involved in the context of abortion is a conflict between a mother and her child. It's not just, it's not two strangers, it's two human beings that have a very specific kind of relationship with one another that's encoded in their in their bodies. That is, the child is in the mother's body the mother, uh, is, uh, her life is intertwined inextricably with the child, and the child is dependent on the mother in, uh, in a way that no two people are, are intertwined and dependent on one another. And, and if we start there in a way that takes the body seriously, our reasoning looks a lot different than it does if we're talking about two strangers fighting over a lifeboat or something like that, which is, you know, if you take the analogies of the abortion rights literature, you get analogies. I mean, the most famous one, of course, from Judith Jarvis Thompson's uh, essay, A Defense of Abortion, she describes the, 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 the circumstances of an unwanted pregnancy uh, with the metaphor of a woman who is abducted, anesthetized, and has a violinist attached to her circulatory system. And he has to stay attached to her surgically for, for nine months or he'll die. Uh, that's that's the, how the abortion rights movement, at least through Judith Jarvis Thompson's eyes, uh, sees sees the problem and the question of abortion, how to how to how to how to resolve it. And once you frame it that way, it's it becomes clear that it's a zero sum conflict between strangers, and we we talk about it almost the way we talk about property. And that's uh, and that's not as I would submit a human way to describe the conflict. And since we're misdescribing the conflict, we're not likely to get a just or humane answer. Yeah. And how does that same type of thinking then play out in terms of end of life issues? Because as I think you rightly pointed out, and especially with abortion, is this dehumanization of the child in the womb and those kind of conflicting rights and how those work out. But how does that then play out in issues of end of life when you, in terms of euthanasia or the care yeah. for the elderly? The problem, again, is a mismatch between the assumptions of the law about what a person is or in particular who this patient is. And, and the reality of who he or she is and what his or her needs are. So you begin with the presupposition. So let's start with the example of a person who has lost their cognitive capacity uh, to make decisions, medical decisions on his or her own behalf, and who is, who is dependent upon life-sustaining measures. That's the clinical human reality. The law comes to that situation with the assumption that the person in, in, the, in the patient's bed is defined by his or her will, who is whose highest flourishing is the interrogation of the self to find his or her original truths to project them and to formulate and configure life plans accordingly. Well, anybody who's ever been sick knows that that's not what's going on in the doctor-patient relationship. And if you and if you try to build a legal apparatus 
to promote to protect that person and promote their flourishing, what you're going to end up with are legal mechanisms for decision making that are completely unsuited to the to the situation. Right. If, if I'm if my goal is to maximize the autonomy of the patient who's cognitively now incapable of making decisions for himself, I can't fully address the clinical situation in a humane and appropriate way. Uh, what a person in a sick bed needs are people to care for him or her. Right. You don't go to the doctor to seek to impose your unencumbered self. And the person who is unconscious or is in, uh, cognitively disabled, uh, dependent on life sustaining measures, his or her best interests aren't served by trying to maximize their autonomy. And right now what the law tries to push us towards is to memorialize our preferences at a time when we can't really uh, understand what our lives are like in those circumstances and that be the sole guide to our decision making. Now that's important. It's important to think through what we want and what our treatment pathway should be. But it's also important, as we said in our in the President's Council on, on Bioethics report called Taking Care, uh, Ethical Caregiving in an Aging Society, we say what you really need is a person who is acting in your best interests, of course, taking into account what you want and what you need uh, and what you've said in the past, but but treating the patient as he or she is, not as we would wish him or her to be. And in the context of assisted suicide, it's even more dramatic. If our goal is to maximize the autonomy and the assertion of the unencumbered will of the atomized individual, then we're gonna then we're gonna promote uh, assisted suicide. But if you take seriously the context of assisted suicide, in which persons who have suicidal ideation a vast majority of them are suffering from depression that's treatable. Frequently, the ideation goes away once the depression is treated. Or persons who are on the margins of society, people who are subject to duress or mistake or fraud or abuse. You know, the disabled community, for example, is extremely hostile to legalizing assisted suicide because they understand that the circumstances are going to push them in the direction of taking their own lives. Insurance companies, uh, we've seen this play out time and time again. The poor, the disabled, the elderly, members of discrete insular minorities. Uh, these are at-risk communities who are already suffering from the structural injustices of our, of our healthcare system. And once you open the possibility of them taking their own lives, that becomes a path of least resistance. And all the incentive to care for them in, all of their, in the fullness of all their needs is, is going to be harder to do. And we're going to be pushed in the direction of well, my job as physician or as family member or as legislator is to create structures where this person can maximize their autonomous decision making to write the last chapter of their own personal narrative. Well, that's, that's not, a, again, a fair clinical account of most circumstances when people have suicidal ideation. Now, there may be uh, narrow circumstances where wealthy people, people of means, usually white people, uh, you know, ha ha decide that they want to go out uh, sort of on their own terms, and they want the, the they want someone to prescribe them lethal medication they can self administer. Yeah, you know, there there may very well be people of sound mind who want to pursue that pathway, but you don't make public policy with that narrow band of privileged people in mind. You make public policy with the weakest and most vulnerable in mind, and therefore you have to build it on an anthropology that takes seriously the weakness and dependence and the subjection to natural limits that are emerged from our embodiment. Yeah, and to shift gears just a little bit from a law perspective, shifting over to understandings of like natural law and ethics and philosophy, what role do you see a theistic natural law playing in a lot of these debates over public bioethics and public policy? I think that pe people of faith should not be shy about explaining their positions in the terms in which they believe make sense to them and 
are persuasive to their fellow citizens. And there's certainly nothing wrong with relying upon intelligible, articulable, faith-based principles in service of public policy. Every People do it all the time. I mean, our homicide laws are not illegitimate because the fifth commandment says thou shalt not kill. I mean, once you want to start asking the question of why should we shouldn't kill innocent people, you pretty quickly get into a theological posture, right? Like there's not really a, a reductive secular account that's not purely utilitarian of the root injunction to, to love our neighbor and to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. I mean, poverty laws and policies, immigration policies, bioethics, they're, they're all the same. Every, every law is grounded in a, in, a, in a normative structure. Every law aims at promoting a particular good or avoiding a particular harm. And there's nothing wrong and there's nothing shameful or inappropriate about individuals who, who, who uh, in the public square make the case for certain policies and certain laws in a theological way. Now, there, the, strategically, there, there might be a good reason to frame one's arguments in a way that would be intelligible to people who, um, who don't share one's faith tradition. But you know, to take the example of abortion again, abortion is grounded basically in the ethical norm that one should not kill innocent human beings. One should not use, without justification, one should not kill innocent human beings. This is a principle that's encoded in our law and it's encoded in our in our in 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 the in the Judeo-Christian tradition and in, in, the, in the Islamic tradition, these are these are these are these are very old principles uh, that have theological roots, and um, uh, and I don't think we should be shy about that. Now, bearing in mind that there are people who who are maybe suspicious of persons of faith, like you and me, and when we go into the public square and we try to make our case, pro-life case for the unborn child and her mother, by the way, not just the unborn child, but the unborn child's mother. And their family and the community and caring for the poor and the vulnerable and you know trying to be the good samaritan we can make that argument in a way that that is grounded in, in our faith tradition but we can do so in a way that's intelligible to those who don't share our our faith but i i think we should not be cowed I and mean, it's a it's a very lazy and cynical move that some in the public square make say oh well, don't impose your religion on me i mean somebody told me today that uh, that President Biden is going to halt all federal executions uh, when he takes office, and I said jokingly, "Well, I'm glad he's going to impose his religion on all of us, and I, I am glad that he's going to halt all the federal executions." But any decision a person makes that's normative, and all law is normative, is grounded in some normative framework, whether it's religious or secular. Yeah. I know one thing that I was really impressed uh, reading through your book is the kind of welcoming and inviting tone. Often when you read cases, especially in ethics and things, sometimes they can get very confrontational, often misreading or overreading uh, someone else's position. Why was it important for you to kind of maintain that welcome and inviting tone throughout your, all your writings, but specifically in this book? Well, thank you for, for saying that. It, it is important to me. Uh, to make the argument with of, of those who I don't agree with in a way that they will recognize and affirm as capturing the, the what they're arguing, right? It, it, it's, it's about the virtue of honesty. But the fundamental point of the book that I'm making is that as embodied beings, as embodied beings, what we need to flourish are what Alistair McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. We need to have networks of people who are willing and able to make the good of another person their own good without seeking some advantage, without seeking something in return, not because it's a contract or a transaction, but because that's what it means to be a human being. 
And we, of course, rely on these networks for our survival when we're disabled or young or elderly. But we also learn what we're supposed to be from these networks, which is people who take care of one another. And, uh, and so what I say, you know, ultimately, human, human beings are, are, by virtue of their embodiment, made for love and friendship. And I think, honestly, I think arguments are really important. And I think that intellectual scaffolding is really important. But ultimately, what's going to change hearts and minds, which I think is sorely missing from our public square at the moment. We saw some horrible things yesterday at the U.S. Capitol, and we've seen horrible things at other times as well in the recent past. And I think people um, are not listening to each other, and they're not treating one another as their neighbor. We're, we're called upon to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're called upon to be the Good Samaritan. And it is through friendship, and it's through, it's through uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that we will change hearts and minds. We need arguments. We need to lay things out there and explain why we hold the views that we do, but a person is not going to listen to you unless they believe that you care about them. And we have to, we have to, as hard as it might be, love our neighbor, love our enemy in a way that uh, gives them the respect of being honest about what they're arguing, but also extends a hand of friendship to those uh, without expecting anything in return, uh, those people who we strongly disagree with. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to end on, especially and as, as we do wrap up. I want to I ask this question almost on every single podcast interview that we have. Um, but as we close out our time today, if someone wanted to take a next step uh, toward learning about bioethics and getting into some of these public theology and public policy issues, what are one or two books outside of your own that you would recommend for folks to grab and to dive into? Yeah, I strongly recommend that people pick up a book by Gil Mylander. Gilbert Mylander is a uh, Lutheran theologian who is on the President's Council of Bioethics, who is one of the very smartest and most interesting people I've ever met. And he's certainly one of the very most interesting, if not the most interesting person who writes about bioethics. He has a book called, and a lot of people look at his book, Bioethics, a Primer for Christians. I think that's a good book. But I think that his book, Body, Soul, and Bioethics, is a great book. It's short. It's digestible. It explains uh, all the issues in a very interesting way. Uh, it gives a great critique of modern bioethics. It talks about assisted reproduction. It talks about abortion. It talks about cloning. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I would also recommend folks look uh, on the old website. It's it's housed at, on, at, on Georgetown's website. It's, if you Google President's Council on Bioethics, you'll find a link that Georgetown hosts and you can look at all the reports that we wrote at the President's Council on Bioethics. We have a report on human cloning. We have a report on embryo research. We have a report on enhancement. We have a report on end-of-life decision-making. We have a report on assisted reproduction. There's a, a, a literary volume that we put together that has excerpts of the great works of Western civilization that echo bioethical themes. It's a great, great resource. I would start with Mylander's book, Body, Soul, and Bioethics, and I would go to the website and you can download all of our reports for free. Just search, if you can do searches if there's an issue you're interested in, definition of death, organ transplantation. It, it, is, a, it is a fantastic resource. President's Council on Bioethics. That's the, that's the Google search term. A bunch of stuff will come up. You'll notice that, that the Georgetown uh, Center for Bioethics or Kennedy Institute of Ethics has archived the entire website uh, from our time uh, from 2002 until uh, 2008. And for listeners, we'll make sure to link to all of that in the show notes. So in case you weren't able to write that down. But Dr. Steed, I want to thank you so much for joining us and taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here on Weekly Tech. I'm really grateful for your work. I'm really grateful for this book specifically and the way that you speak to these important issues in bioethics. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat today. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Sneed and learn more about his work, including his new book, in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, and it's designed to help you to prepare to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day, as well as to stay up to date on the top tech news. As always, you can subscribe at jasonpacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.